My name is Andy, and I am an alcoholic and an addict, uh, which my sponsor always says is like saying you're dumb and stupid, but I guess I am dumb and stupid. Um, Kind of uh, going back a ways, uh, I grew up in a town um, that was pretty... The town itself was pretty well off, uh, and my folks worked for the post office, so we didn't have like the the lawyer money or the doctor money that I saw around me growing up, and uh, and so from a pretty early age, I definitely had a sense that like other people had things that I did not, and and I felt a little bit different because of that, but it didn't strike me. Like, I don't think that's a weird reaction uh necessarily like like maybe it's a little insecure but i definitely like had friends that had stuff and like wondered why uh you know their walls and their homes were nice and smooth and ours you could see horsehair plaster um, which didn't, like, I wasn't growing up in squalor, but it was a little, you know, it just wasn't as fancy. And so I, I like, pretty quickly, like, understood that we were a little bit different, and that was fine. And my folks, uh, you know, they did right by me, and they loved me. And uh, my dad definitely stressed about that side of things, stressed about money. And uh, he would occasionally get quite angry and go into little yelling fits uh, where it would seem like you'd almost lose control. Um, so I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home, but I grew up in an intermittently angry home. And my mom would just kind of uh, melt into the background when those little outbursts would happen. And... Uh, uh, but like I said, for the most part, like I didn't, I didn't worry about much. Um, I my brother got a DUI when he was seventeen or so, and I remember that because it was a turmoil in the short household, and he uh, he got into a bunch of trouble, and I kind of saw how he was loudly um, rebelling. And in uh, in some level, I made a decision that I would not do it so um, audaciously. And so I was quieter about it. And when I got to be, you know, 16, 17, uh, my, you know, I was confused as to where my Mazda was. And my parents made it clear that, uh, honey, we work for the post office. We're not getting you a... A Mazda, and I understood eventually, although I will say when I turned 16, I woke up and looked out the window, praying, praying for a car with a bow on it. And, uh, you know, when I started using... So anyway, so these... uh, This is kind of the the most... um, significant feeling, this feeling of kind of false entitlement (laughs) that I had uh, that made me uncomfortable as a young person. And also I was overweight and so I was certainly eating uh, to maintain uh, a large stature. And I wasn't, 
I wasn't really made fun of um, because I kind of learned to get out in front of that. And I learned that if I made fun of myself, people would not make fun of me. So uh, I was was pretty, uh, became pretty adept at uh, joking and uh, being a clown and... And so that was how I coped with those feelings for the most part. And I, uh, I eventually, you know, I was curious as to, I remember I was actually, at first I was fairly kind of, I don't know how you say, a militant about drugs and alcohol. I remember my brother, he's 10 years older than me, he took me camping. This was well after his incident and in running. Uh, and he took me camping and he asked me if I wanted to smoke weed and I was 13 at the time and I was appalled, appalled, the scandal. And I told him, uh, that he was a bad brother. <laughs> he told my mom, he told me that my mom had smoked weed and he found it in her purse once trying to like, I don't know, I guess, uh, cover for himself and make it sound okay. And then I just refused or refused to believe it because I'm a mama's boy. So I was not about to let that trickery get to me. And uh, it was not okay. And like, of course, fast forward three years and a bunch of people I know are smoking. Not everybody, although I'm sure I felt like it was a good chunk of everybody um, but uh, I wanted to smoke weed. I was curious, and so I asked this kid uh, who I knew smoked a ton of work, a uh, ton of work, smoked a ton of weed at my work. Um, I asked him if I could smoke with him, and he said, sure. And so we went to his house. It was a neighboring town. It wasn't. I wasn't about to do this in Lexington. No one could know. So I went to his house. We went to the basement of his house uh, and we smoked weed and we vaporized it out of a light bulb, a homemade light bulb vape and I remember thinking this was very exotic and scary and a little hardcore for me uh, and then we went to a video store with his friends and I got separated from him and I went home and it didn't, I didn't really feel that different at all and then I didn't smoke for like six months and I didn't tell anyone and then I remember I told my friend Mark and kind of almost just to see if it was okay because I had been in a friend group that was also militant and and Mark was also curious about trying it again. So we tried it again with some other friends and it felt it was fun that time. And so we, yeah, we went with it. Uh, and I wouldn't say I was not a pothead in my sophomore year of high school, which is when I tried it, but I definitely started seeking out uh, weed more and more uh, throughout my high school career. And I enjoyed high school, which is like a crazy thing to a lot of people, but I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I was fairly uh, well-regarded, I wouldn't say popular, but I didn't have like, I was like friends with a lot of different groups of people. And, and so what happened is when I was 17, 
that's when I started drinking because that was like the leveling. That was like the leveling up. I was. I remember my first drink. I was at uh, summer camp, and I was a camp counselor, and they had fired like three people that summer for either smoking or drinking, and uh, so immediately there are consequences, right? Um, but that didn't really uh, matter to me. All I knew is that my friend James gave me a Poland spring water bottle filled with uh, vodka and that I was to go into the, uh, the, the latrine and I was to drink all of it. And that's exactly what I did. And most of the, a lot of the other people had already gotten, this is like the last day of the session, and the, a lot of people had already gotten uh, intoxicated somehow, and I wanted to to be a part of, you know, naturally. So uh, I drank, and I got real drunk, and I tried to kiss this girl who I'd like kind of had a crush on all summer, and I was very insistent, and she uh, rebuffed me, and then I. Uh, acted like I was joking, uh, and that was that. That was the end of our romance. And uh, I remember just feeling kind of paranoid, but also feeling so at ease. Uh, and I didn't even know, didn't even recognize really any anxiety previous to that. Or I definitely felt um, like I judged myself as less than these people because they were having sex. And uh, and seem and were more kind of in the in crowd at camp than I was, which <laughs> today seems so uh, unimportant. The in crowd at summer camp, but at the time was really like all that I cared about, uh, and uh, I was just a chubby virgin, and so I was like, I'm gonna. I can't do this one thing I'm preoccupied with, which was sex. So I'm going to just drink and uh, smoke weed. So I did, once I figured that out and I got into my senior year of high school, uh, I started to go at it. And and then it kind of coincided with uh, college applications. And I, uh, that was a whole ordeal because uh, my uh, dream was to be a famous actor and I was to go to acting school and um, my my parents paid a pretty penny to send me to an acting coach and my dad was upset that I was going to go to the acting school that was the most expensive acting school, but I insisted because... Uh, I wanted the best, and I'd grown up in a place where everyone got the best, so I thought that I should have it too. And uh, like I said, the sense of entitlement uh, really continued for an absurd amount of time. Um, and so I ended up going to school in New York, and um, and along the way, I really felt like a real amount of stress kind of getting there into that the turmoil in the house, and then also... Uh, really kind of depressed with just this idea that I was going to turn from uh, like a little ball of potential into like a self-actualized human. And that that kind of idea that I had to rubber hit the road, I had to like show something 
for all this investment and time was very stressful to me on some level. And so uh, I smoked more and more weed and I would do it. I would say I wouldn't do it um, on a Thursday or I would say I wouldn't do it. I remember I was doing this play. I was Faust in Faust and I would say I wouldn't do it before rehearsal or before the show or the, for the run of the show. And of course uh, I inevitably did it anyway. Uh, and I started to construct my social life that last year of high school around finding people who could find me a party where I could get wasted at every weekend. And I, I made sure of that. Uh, and I was pretty successful in that. And so when I finally did go off to school, uh, that was the way I related to people. I remember this feels like it's from, uh, like a Degrassi episode or just the worst uh, parody movie. But uh, I would, uh, there were a couple of people in my dorm when I got there uh, and I was like, Hey bro, do you partake? And then I gave him kind of a knowing look. And, uh, and of course I was referring to marijuana and uh, they said, what? I was like, weed and then that's how i met my best friends in my dorm we smoked weed together all the time and uh that when i landed in new york i felt uh truly for the first time truly like i did not know myself i mean it was a profound uh what i recognize now as depression but but the real this feeling that i really was an imposter um that I really did not uh, and could not uh, really function or construct myself in a weird way. And so, and I'm talking about all these feelings because they, they really came to fuel what I was starting to escape from. Like in high school, I really, there wasn't like a thing I was trying to escape from, but more and more when I had something to escape from, a feeling I didn't like, uh, I retreated into uh, into weed mostly and then also alcohol uh, to a lesser degree. And, and more and more in college, that, that same kind of conning of myself and lying to myself and boundary breaking for myself would happen where I would say, you know, I have a test. I'm not going to smoke or drink the night before the test. I'm going to study. And I really would want that. I would really, really, really want that more than anything. And, uh, I, you know, Strider, who is a real human who came and lived <laughs> with me, would come down the hall and say, do you want to smoke? And I'd say, yes. And, you know, we'd do all the ridiculous shit where we'd put the towel under the door and get the 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 paper towel roll with with dryer sheets in it and breathe the smoke into there. And it was very elaborate, uh, and that was part of the fun. That was part of the ritual and really what became part of the distraction for me. And uh, so that kept happening, and it got to a point freshman year I remember December rolled around and my grandmother died and I went to the funeral and I just smoked weed the entire month, like every single day. 
And I didn't know kind of how to be there for my dad. It was his mom. I really wasn't. I, I kind of did my own thing. There was kind of this ongoing tension by this point where I would smoke weed near the house or outside the house, and my parents didn't like it. And then I also remember I smoked weed with my mom at one point, and I, I thought that was funny and um, and really co-signed it for me, made me feel like it was okay. You know, you know, for someone who smokes normally, I'm sure it is okay. But increasingly, uh, it was to escape uh, over and over and over again. And I got back to school, and I can only describe it. And this only happened to me a couple times. It felt like my brain uh, ceased to function. I mean, it really felt like. Uh, I could not absorb information that I could not learn. Uh, and we were talking like basic classes, like freshman year of college. Uh, and I felt like I could not write. Uh, and I remember I, I had this teacher whose work I just could not do. I mean, a lot of my acting work was just to show up, like literally be in this room and have a pulse and do the things we tell you. And, and I could do that. I could do those things because it was all practice. But there was this one class I had to do a bit of work for. And um, I just spilled my guts to this poor guy. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know. In retrospect, he, like, really was, like, revealed a lot. He was like, I've been very depressed. I, I kind of understand. Uh, we'll give you these kind of parameters to finish the work. And I could not meet, no matter how far it was pushed, could not meet the work, and, and I got, I finally broke down, and I was like, I must be depressed, because my dad had been depressed, and and so I'm going to get a therapist, and so I got a therapist, and I and I got a psychiatrist, and they gave me clonopin and Zoloft, um, clonopin for anxiety, didn't even know you could abuse it, so a real missed opportunity there, but uh I took it and it, you know, didn't really help and it didn't really help because I was still smoking weed and drinking all the time and lying to my psychiatrist about it. I would not, I was not telling her the truth. I think at one point she had me fill out one of those like 20 question surveys if you have a problem and I'm pretty sure I made sure to lie on that and still failed it. <laughs> Did not successfully evade her questions and, uh, and so I uh, I just spiraled. I mean, I barely made it out of that semester. Uh, I got home again. I binged and binged and binged. And I would try to stay off weed for a while. I identified weed made me sad. So, so then I would try to stay off. And then I would drink a lot. And then when I drank a lot, I would smoke a lot again. So it was this uh, nice little cycle. And when I got home for the summer, I was so depressed. I remember me and my aunt just did everything we could to try to get out of that hole. I got a therapist. We went to hot yoga. We're both fairly overweight people at this point still. And uh, hot yoga is not for us. But we went and uh, did not solve my depression problem or my weed or alcohol problem. And, uh, and we... You know, she just kind of took me around. We went horseback riding, I remember. <laughs> and uh, I almost didn't go back to school. I almost gave up. Uh, and then something, you know, I thought, you know what, I, maybe I'll give it another try. 
and so I went and uh, I did okay. It smoked. I think I made it maybe a month without smoking, and that to me was sobriety. And uh, then I maybe two months, and then I got back from Thanksgiving break with my friend Justin. We he liked weed, and we got some weed, and I just binged it. I binged all weekend, and I'm a I'm a binger, you know. Um, really, really struggled a long time. I did, I never really blacked out, but I would binge. I'd drink a lot, and then I would smoke a lot and I'd do this for three you know three days and then it was, I was okay because I could sometimes I could make a week or I could make the weekdays without using and by this point in college this is all I have to relate to people with so I I binge with Justin I got back and I just spiraled I mean my I had a paper due I remember I had a paper due and I could not write the paper. I couldn't put a sentence down. And I thought, well, I should just die. I should just kill myself. And previous to this, when I had been home uh, with my mom, I was very depressed. And she made me promise not to hurt myself because I said, Mom, uh, I hope that I have a brain tumor so they can just remove it and fix whatever is wrong with me. That's how uh, hopeless I was when I said that to my own mother. And she sat there in the car and she cried. And we both cried. And and after that, she said, you need to promise never to hurt yourself, never to do anything. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to make it. I wouldn't survive that. And so I promised her, and it was with this, this happened in that summer, and I had also, you know, become convinced that I really had something wrong with my brain, and uh, and I went to, uh, I had had seizures when I was a little kid, so I convinced a neurologist, that my old neurologist, to take a look and peek in my head, and they did a bunch of tests, and they figured, they looked at me, and they said, you're just depressed, you're just a sad kid, said to me and my mom, and so it's that that I went back to school with, is just that intense sadness, and uh, I had no way to get away from it, now it was, you know, drugs and alcohol were making it worse, and still, still, I knew all that, I knew it made it worse, uh, still, I came home with my friend, and I, I smoked weed until uh, I couldn't think anymore. I remember thinking that. I remember, I hope I can, what if I smoke enough so that my brain actually doesn't work? And in one way, that is what happened, but it was not the way I wanted uh and so when I got back to school, like I said, I just plummeted. I just plummeted. And I had a plan uh, for how I would do it. And I, uh, I arranged for that plan to take place. And uh, right, I remember before I went back to my dorm room the night I was planning, uh, I went to the wellness center at my school and I told someone what was happening. And then I had this, and I knew if I said I had a plan, and then I had arranged for it, that that something bad would happen, and that it would really change my life, as I knew it. Uh, and so I went. Anyway, 
and I told them the truth for the first time in a long, long, long time. And they said, uh, they listened, and they said, you have to go to the hospital. And I said, I I don't want to go to the hospital. I said, well, we can't let you go back to your dorm. And uh, if you don't choose to go, you have to go, which to this day seems like a a, a paradox of some kind. Um, And it was not, I don't think, entirely voluntary in the traditional sense of the word voluntary. And so I said, well, okay. And uh, so I loaded into the van, and there was another girl from from the school that I was in uh, who was in the van, and she had a self-harming issue, and uh, was also very sad. And so here we are just kind of bumping down the road. uh, We get to a hospital, and they check us in. And uh, I think maybe, I can't remember if I got a phone call first or if... Uh, it was the next day, but my parents came down, and we just sat in the waiting room, and we just cried, because we didn't know if, if I was ever going to be okay, and uh, I didn't believe I was ever going to be okay. I thought that really, truly, my brain was busted, and that uh, that you know, whenever I started smoking weed, I. I would eventually end up really, really depressed. And the thing about when I started is I could not reliably stop because I would try to control it and then I would drink and then I would get high when I was drunk and then I would start smoking again and then it would start all over again, all over again. I mean, the cycle happened maybe three or four times and I didn't know how to stop it. And so I was finally, for the first time, physically removed from substances and they loaded up my they definitely gave me a good hit of Zoloft loaded that up Uh, and I was frustrated at that hospital because they gave me several different doctors and uh, told me it was a teaching hospital and and my thought just was that well I'm not a I'm not a guinea pig Uh, give me the same doctor please Uh, and they did not they did not do that. And, uh, you know, there were some weird things happening in my brain. I thought that I was being listened to. It got a little funky. Uh, but what I, what I remember more than anything is that there was this commitment for AA that came in. And, uh, uh, you know, there was this guy that walked in. And he looked like, like a poor man's Mick Jagger. His name was Trace. And he looks exactly like uh, what people imagine when you imagine someone named Trace. He had like long hair, but like not too long. It was like shoulder length and like bell-bottom jeans. And I believe there were rhinestones. I may be constructing that. But uh, and I don't remember necessarily what he said. But I remember that when I left that little room, and they had suggested generally that I go to these meetings, when I left that little room that uh, I felt hopeful for the first time. And it was weird. My my aunt had sent me this little rock that said believe on it. And I'm not like a believer in uh, mystical bullshit uh, typically. But 
I'm very, I was very agnostic, and uh, and so I, there's this little believe stone, and I had lost it earlier that day, and I was freaking out because uh, I thought oh, I'm such an idiot, like I can't even get that right, and like just the self pity was very weird, and and I lost it, and uh, and then when I that meeting was over, I felt the sense of hope, and then I saw it, I found it this little stone in the the nurse's station i said can you give me that stone and i'm sure they were like well okay uh but for me it was like this sign from god and god was telling me it was going to be okay and, and in a weird way and i don't you know it may have been the meds but i really felt that in a real way for the first time in years uh that i was going to be okay and then I could navigate my way out of this thing. And that whatever God was, this higher power, maybe this AA or this fellowship or this group of weirdos, that they would be there for me. And uh, and that proved that feeling really bore out for me. I got out of the hospital and it was, you know, a lot of times this part of the story is really tidy. And uh, my story is not tidy. I, I got out of the hospital and then my grandfather immediately died. We were very close. And it was very sad. And I thought it was like some kind of weird joke that my mom was doing. But turns out, nope, he died. And, uh, and so I was pretty depressed still. I mean, I did not just come out of that depression. I was sober uh in the real way so i wasn't using any minor but altering substances i had kind of deduced that that was not for me and and i was going to these aa meetings and they said yeah you probably shouldn't do that stuff and so i was sober for the first time but i was not happy and uh i was still really incredibly awkward uh around people i'm not the not the gem of interpersonal relations that I am today. And uh, and I did not talk to people, and I would go late, and I would leave early to these meetings. And uh, I became suicidal again in, in during a med change that was happening. And uh, I, you know, I went back into a hospital. I went to a different hospital. It was a much, it was a better hospital. The care was better. Uh, and I got on a good medical uh medication situation and uh i got to about six months sober without uh i had a sponsor who we kind of we started meeting to go through um the steps in the big book of alcoholics anonymous is what it's called it's where it kind of lays out uh what those 12 steps that people talk about are and so I met with this guy a couple times. And then I was like, and then I was at a party in Western Mass, and I had no cell service and no way to leave. And I remember I'd, uh, I I really struggled in with this idea of powerlessness because you know I really I had I hadn't blacked out really, and I hadn't. Um, I hadn't felt like I had no power over alcohol. I knew I had no power over weed. Alcohol was tough. And eventually, uh, you know, I went to this party and I'd, I'd had this explicit feeling of wanting 
to not use, to not smoke weed. And, and, uh, I did it anyway. And in the, and in AA, they talk about this thing called obsession. And I never had an obsession in the traditional sense that, oh, I don't want to do this, but I do want to do it. Like, I didn't have that kind of obsession happening. It was more like, you know, I'm not going to smoke on Thursday. And then I get to Thursday, and I'm like, well, maybe I'll smoke. So that's what my obsession looked like most of my actual using. So I didn't identify it. I didn't see it. And, and so this relapse that happened in Western Massachusetts was actually really informational and then the other piece that they throw around in the program is the phenomenon of craving which just means once you start you don't know when you're going to stop and again at this party i started and I, and I did not just go for a little bit i went hard and i started drinking and i got wicked wasted and uh then i i chose to uh drive my friend's car home with them in it and uh we made it home safely but that was by no means guaranteed uh it was very dangerous and uh so i started i kind of understood these two things this obsession and this phenomenon of craving in a different way and uh and that was july 25th 2010 and that is my last sobriety date. It was two weeks before my 21st birthday. My 21st birthday was a weird, sad hookah bar party uh, with like a collection of high school friends um, who were confused that I was sober. And, you know, from there, like, man, I mean, over the arc of my life, in the last seven and a half years, uh, I've had a lot happen, and uh, and I like I like to go through the list because I want people to know that truly uh, you can stay sober through anything, uh, and it's not like you know I haven't been homeless or deeply impoverished in any way. But um, here's uh, the thing: so I, I went back to school. I went to community college. I moved in with uh, someone for a, a nannying job. I lost that job. Uh, I wrote a mean letter to the person who gave me that job that was not appropriate for me to do that. Uh, I got into a four-year college again. I graduated from college. Uh, I got into the Peace Corps and Teach for America. I went down to do Teach for America. Uh, I quit Teach for America. I... Um, became uh, clinically depressed again in sobriety. I was suicidal for several months in sobriety. I've been incredibly anxious in sobriety. I've been on psych meds. I've been off psych meds. Currently off, have been for several years. Uh, I've biked to California on a bicycle. Uh, I've biked 4,000 miles in Europe. Um, I've gotten engaged to a woman. Uh, I've gotten unengaged to a woman. I came out of the closet. If you read between the lines, may or may not be related to the previous facts. Uh, my mom passed away. Uh, and I uh, now have a job uh, basically combining theater and sobriety. Uh 
and that's pretty incredible. And so that's all to say, uh, oh, I've changed sponsors, and I've had sponsors, and I've helped new guys get sober and, and had sponsors. I've done all that in, in AA. And, um, I think the most consistent thing is that I've stayed really connected and grounded in a group of people that are sober. It's important to me. Uh, and uh, I really do not, I don't tolerate uh, a life that isn't like pretty good. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of that, you know, I'm very privileged uh, as I've learned. Uh, and, and a lot of that. So I actually have a lot of say in that. And I have a lot of say in like how much I like give back to the world and uh, and what I do to make sure that like other people have some of the privileges that I had. And uh, and I'm really glad that I get to do that. And my, uh, you know, life right now is pretty good. Um, I'm sober, which means like my baseline is way higher than it ever was when I wasn't. And, uh, and I know that I can be sober no matter what happens going forward. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. That's it. Bye.